1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And today on The Exchange, we are getting you ready for the Fed decision, which happens just about an hour from now. We've got an all Fed edition of Rapid Fire. We'll talk taper yields and, most importantly, what does it all mean for stocks? We'll hit the dots and everything else you need to know for this big afternoon. And while the Fed debates whether inflation is transitory, General Mills says no, it ain't. The company expects its input costs to rise between seven and eight percent next year. We'll have more details. And Robinhood caving to pressure and changing the way it deals with cryptocurrencies is crypto even more important to the company's future than stock trading. But we begin with the markets, which are rising pretty nicely here ahead of the Fed decision, aren't they, Dom? I mean,
2: those stock trading elements here are very much in the green today. So whatever you want to think about crypto or risk assets in general, we do. Need- know that the investors out there who are tilting towards the bullish side are trying to make a go at recovering from those lows that we saw on Monday due in large part to Evergrande, that Chinese real estate developer. The Dow Industrials near the session high, is now up 400 some points, over 1% gains there. The S&P 500 now above that 4,400 mark. Now, a lot of traders watching that 4435 or thereabouts level, that represents the 50-day average price. That's a key level that a lot of traders like to watch there. And the NASDAQ composite, 14,878, up about a percent as well. So, again, nice move higher, but still a little ways to go before recovering the losses from Monday's uh, steep losses there. The 10-year Treasury note yield, always a focus here ahead of a big Fed rate decision, currently 1.31%. And as you can see, despite everything that's been going on, those yields have been holding pretty steady in a fairly tight range, even with the Evergrande situation in China. So maybe that tells you something about risk appetite or perhaps risk aversion. It doesn't seem to be moving a lot given the Fed and what's going to happen this afternoon. As for places that we've seen some real, I guess, shrugging off, check out Expedia, Booking Holdings, and American Airlines. On a week-to-date basis, you can see here, these stocks have really largely shrugged off all of the Evergrande issues here. Travel-related reopening-type companies here have been up on the week and have not really felt any kind of pain from that. So watch those travel stocks. And then one more to watch today a massive slide on a relative basis in a mega cap stock that we all care about because it's such a large part of the S&P. Facebook shares off 4% right now. Now they're only up about 25% in gear to date. This after the company tells us that they may be underreporting some of the results in its advertising business tied to iPhones. Why, Kelly? Because anyone with an iPhone knows that now Apple asks you whether or not you want the apps to track your tracking, track your traffic across applications. It makes it a lot harder for advertisers to advertise. If you say no, that's going to have a possible material impact on their results. So Facebook shares down on that, Kelly. I'll send things back over and, to you. And
1: Dom, um, Epic also saying Apple's still banning it from the uh, App Store. It just a uh, sign, in, uh, I guess today, of Apple really throwing its weight around. At the end of the day, we're all accessing the, this content on our phones.
2: Well, it's not just on our phones. Apple has, remember, made it part of its core identity, right? over the last several years to say that if you have an iPhone product, if you have an Apple product, your privacy is one of their top concerns. And this privacy issue is now having a lot of ripple effects across people who use that advertising platform to kind of gain their revenue. So this is going to be a huge theme that develops over the course of the next several years, especially when it comes to regulation in big tech.
1: Exactly. Dom, thank you very much. Dom Chu, stocks are rebounding ahead of the Fed decision as House Democrats also pass a bill to suspend the debt limit until next year and fund the government through November. We'll have more on that in just a moment. Also, China's Evergrande Group says it struck a deal on a bond interest payment due tomorrow, but could Powell and company rain on the rally? Joining me now is Steve Whiting. He's the chief investment strategist at Citi Global Wealth. Steve, could I dwell on China for just a moment with you? Because it's probably the only opportunity we'll have in the next hour. Um, Did they buckle here? How do you you read this sequence of events?
0: Well, first off, I would just say that Evergrande itself is a domestic Chinese issue. It's external borrowings or $14 billion, whether or not that's paid, probably uh, will be over the near term. This is not a systemic level event. What is material is that there's been a severe deterioration in housing finance and real estate and property finance in China that's going to slow the sector significantly. And so, China at this point needs to ease macroeconomic policy to probably meet its minimum growth targets. Sure. This is uh, a significant hurdle, and that's slowing for the rest of the world is material. but. This could have easily been blown out of proportion in terms of macroeconomic event. Let's even think about this. COVID last year had corporate profits in the finance sector down 20 percent, the second most profitable year uh, since 2006. And that was in the most severe, sharp recession uh, in post-war history. And so the idea that this small liability inside an economy that is really not closely connected Uh, through financial channels is going to blow up the world, was easily overstated.
1: Fair enough. But I think the big questions for investors right now are, should they uh, look to these opportunities in China to buy low if you think stocks are making a comeback? Or, as many have been warning, is China now uninvestable as Xi Jinping possibly pivots the economy? And how does that fit into asset allocation more broadly? I mean, this is what you do so well, is kind of give us that whole global landscape. And if we lose Chinese growth at the margin, what does it mean for everything from commodities that people might be investing in because they like the secular EV growth story, for instance, but now do they have to contend with slowing demand from China or not? I'm just curious how you would put that all together. and it, Because again, it feeds into you know, the attractiveness ultimately of US equities as part of the puzzle.
0: There are a lot of different lenses to look at here and, and different ways of taking this question apart. The first thing is, if China were to slow to 5% growth in line with International Monetary Fund projections for the next five years, it's still going to be a bigger and bigger share of the world economy. It's going to have a very large influence. And if you think about the effect of socialism, it doesn't necessarily mean that China is out of the game of science uh, and technology. Now, if you think about particular stock groups, we have real questions as to some of them, whether they've gotten too cheap, those that are maybe out of favor uh, with Chinese authorities versus others that have been fine all through this. But I think that the near-term tactical picture is probably that China will change course Uh, in terms of macro policy and growth, its shares have been down more than 30%. History suggests it's going to take longer to get back uh, what was lost, but that still may be a worthy return for people who want to diversify. But we shouldn't have a tremendous amount of confidence that we know exactly what's next in China. And so we're not recommending big concentrated positions for everybody uh, to jump in. Now, I think that the global picture right now, we can easily get ourselves thrown off by the fact that we're going to have slowing growth. We're going to see, in fact, that even these distortions on inflation, what you just mentioned about next year's prices will be up so much, that's gonna take time to resolve, but we're in an environment where we're, we've probably seen peak cyclical momentum. These early periods of economic growth that are very rapid, they come down. That's not the same thing as a decline. Right. We see share prices fall on these sorts of things. But I think if we look at core investments, We're going to see that high-quality companies that can really outcompete the bond market very easily here with yields uh, yields negligible, um, that we're going to find that their growth is very worthy. It's just it's not going to be a 30% return environment like the last 12 months. Uh, And that would include just equities across the board.
1: And that's exactly. Quick final question. Let's rank global asset classes. Where do U.S. equities fall in that for you for the next, uh, you know, 6 to 12 months?
0: Um, Overweight, though, I would say that we are up in market cap. Um, we've shifted to dividend growth strategies, uh, because, again, if you are a market leading firm that can grow an income share while yields are down, uh, that's the way uh, we'd want to play it. Things like healthcare that are very mid-cycle investments, they're not the most rapid uh, growing element of the market. And you have plenty of room, again, to still have growth stocks and to help still, still have some cyclicals and have international but we're really focusing in on sustainable returns, not bounce back mm. uh, from the, the, the collapse that we've just been through. That's why healthcare is our single largest overweight globally.
1: I'm starting to hear that more and more. Uh, dividend strategies, healthcare, a very different kind of feel from what we've seen before. Steve, thank you for setting us up this thank way you. today. We appreciate it. Steve Whiting with City Global Wealth. Elsewhere in Washington, Congress is racing to avoid running out of money and hitting the debt
3: ceiling almost simultaneously. Elon Moy is here with the very latest state of play. Elon? Kelly, the deadline to fund the government is next week. The deadline to avoid a catastrophic default is next month. And Democrats are tying the two together. Now, their plan would keep the government running through December the 3rd and suspend the debt ceiling until December 2022. But Republicans are against this. No GOP lawmakers voted for it when it passed the House last night. And Republicans intend to block it in the Senate as well to protest Democrats' $3.5 trillion social spending plan.
4: If Washington Democrats want to jam through trillions of dollars in reckless spending all by themselves, they can raise the debt limit all by themselves. If they want to do one, they'll need to do the other.
3: But Democrats are digging in, too. They say this is a shared responsibility that covers previous spending that both parties agreed to.
5: Those who vote no... Will be saying we're okay with default and we're okay with the government shutdown. To say do it another way,
4: that doesn't cut it.
3: Now, there is no easy way out of this jam. Today, six former Treasury Secretaries sent a letter to congressional leadership urging them to raise the debt ceiling. Kelly, they acknowledge that the process has become more contentious and politically fraught, but they said that default could cause serious economic and national security harm. Back to you.
1: Which I think everybody would agree upon, but I don't think Secretary Mnuchin was one of the signees. That's
3: that's exactly right. Uh, There are reports that he did uh, speak to Senator McConnell about this problem, uh, but he did not sign on to that letter.
1: That then leaves the Republicans in the position of still having to agree to anything that would fundamentally raise the debt ceiling here, right? So what does their version of the path from here to there look like?
3: Well, what they say is two things. One, that they can avoid a government shutdown by simply stripping the debt limit provision out of any short-term funding bill. In fact, McConnell introduced a bill today, to do just that. The second thing they say is that Democrats should be able to do this on their own by using the same process that they're using to pass that $3.5 trillion spending bill. The problem with that is that the process is incredibly complicated. It could take a couple of weeks to complete, and they would frankly still need Republican support to help it get out of committee and get to the floor in the first place. So this is really an entirely political exercise, Kelly, but it has economic consequences.
1: Oh, hugely. Absolutely. Elon, we appreciate it with the latest for today, or I should say maybe for this hour. Elon Moy in Washington, D.C. Just under an hour until the Fed decision at 2 p.m. Eastern. And we have an all-star panel on deck to break down the biggest themes to watch. But first, General Mills is in the green after posting higher sales in the face of inflation and higher costs. We'll dig into the food supply chain and what it could mean for the Fed in just a moment. Speaking of the supply chain, the White House, set to host a meeting on the global chip shortage, will be joined by a former Intel exec who launched her own chip company and is now working to solve the supply problem.
6: this is the exchange on cnbc
1: electricity a big idea that's inspired countless new ones from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives 30 years ago state street launched the spider s&p 500 etf spy a big idea that inspired the
7: world to invest differently and still does what can you do with SPY?
4: Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETS are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: Welcome back. If the Fed needs a case study in transitory, look no further than this morning's report from consumer giant General Mills. The company warning it's facing price increases on many different fronts, the highest costs in at least a decade. My next guest says General Mills may have an edge in dealing with this if they act early and aggressively on pricing. Joining me now is Evercore ISI Senior Managing Director David Palmer. David, welcome. Thank you. So is it correct that General Mills thinks its supply costs will be up seven to eight percent next year?
5: This is for fiscal 22. And so they they nudge that up from just 7%. So things are getting worse even lately. Uh, But as you said before, they've been more aggressive on the pricing side of things and they seem to have room on the productivity. So they seem to be doing better than the average food company right now.
1: Sure. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But tell us why their supply uh, costs or their supply chain problems and the input costs are still getting worse
5: a lot of it is labor there's labor in everything there's labor in these food costs logistics warehousing uh the it's causing issues with the amount of uh, shipped on time and in full that any retailer is getting and so sometimes it's having an impact on the actual top line as well but for general mills it's really more about the costs they're making do they're getting their shipments to match the consumption at least but it's coming with these elevated costs as they're saying so Right now, it looks like they have enough pricing that's going into place. They had 4%. It's probably on its way to 5 or 6 But even that, they're saying, might not be enough. So there's a lot of inflation out there.
1: So if the cost of labor is now making their costs continue to go up into next year, is the Fed helping or hurting their cause, or is it completely irrelevant to it?
5: Well, it, a lot of this is the labor shortage that it exists. Uh, companies are becoming more resigned, uh, whether they're restaurant companies or food companies. Uh, to this labor issue sticking around. So it seems to be uh, that is your root cause. And it's causing a lot of, you know, of course, wage inflation and wage expectations is the most permanent type of inflation uh, cause. And that seems to be what is happening right now within the food chain.
1: Very, very interesting. So let's turn to how they're dealing with it. Um, Because, again, even with companies facing what they're facing, they do have options. The way they employ those will tell us a lot about the economy in the next year or two. You mentioned productivity, innovation. How are they using technology to get around the need for more labor hours?
5: Well, certainly e-commerce has been a big channel uh, growth opportunity for them and for others. Uh, General Mills in particular has a pretty good e-commerce presence, partly because of this pet food business, which has been explosive in its growth. And one of the big surprises for this quarter for General Mills was the pet food business. Uh, People are having uh, uh, pets these days with people being at home. Uh, They're seemingly valuing their pets more. They've redefined that with Blue Buffalo that uh, what pet parents will pay for pet food. And they're growing very nicely, 20% growth in that category. Uh, and then, of course, convenience and food services coming back quickly for them. But e-commerce is also growing nicely, and that seems to be a permanent two-two year step up, much like you're seeing happening in the restaurant channel as
1: well. So, final question then: Sort of, you said General Mills, you'd still be constructive. They are going to, uh, as it sounds, pass some of these costs uh, on. How much of those costs should consumers expect to face, and will that protect their profit margins?
5: The average food company out there is going to be doing something like that mid to high, you know, mid at the high end of the mid single digit type pricing. And you're seeing high single digit type basket inflation for the average food company. This company is pretty similar to that. They said seven to eight percent. It feels like they've gotten four percent done, still ramping into next year. So a lot of it, uh, a lot of pricing, but it's not going to fully make gross margins neutral. It might make gross profit dollars neutral, and the top line is going to be much stronger. So food companies will end up being okay, but it is uh, certainly a margin uh, con- contracting environment, even for a general mills.
1: And a margin contracting environment, just not, I guess, as bad as people had feared and still one resulting mm-hmm. in price hikes for the consumer. It's a really fascinating picture that you've painted, David. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. David Palmer with Evercore ISI. Speaking of high prices, let's take a quick look at shares of FedEx today. It's having its worst day since last March in 2020, the pandemic nadir. FedEx shares are down nearly 9% right now. You've heard a lot of companies complain about higher shipping costs because the labor shortage is making companies like FedEx pay more for their new workers and to require overtime from existing workers. So instead of benefiting from all this, FedEx is actually struggling. Those higher labor costs are weighing on their earnings as well forced them to cut guidance for 2022, I believe only 90 days after they said it. Shares are negative on the year by about 11 percent. Rival UPS is positive by about 10 percent. Coming up, shares of Robinhood are higher after the company announces crypto wallets. What's it mean for rivals like Coinbase and the rest of the crypto ecosystem? And ahead of the White House's semiconductor summit, we'll speak with a member of the president's National Security Advisory Committee on how to address the global chip shortage. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow 30 heat map on a pretty strong day across the board for equities. We're back in a moment.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Just about half an hour to go until the Fed decision. Here's how markets look right now. Off the highs when we were up about 500 points, but pretty strong still with a Dow at 381 Led, by the way, by some movers uh, in terms of Boeing, I believe Chevron and Goldman. So, again, reopening place, energy, financials, that's what's working this hour. S&P's up 1%, NASDAQ trailing just a hair in terms of it only being up eight tenths of 1%. Here are some of the movers this hour. It's a busy day for IPOs especially. Look at Toast, the restaurant tech play, surging 51% after pricing at 40 bucks a share. It opened at 65 although it's actually a little bit below that level. So again, that pricing is based off of the IPO price last night. But if you bought it at the open, you might be about five bucks underwater. Still, this company is valued at around 30 billion dollars. Nearly four times its private valuation around $8 billion less than a year ago. A huge turnaround for a company that also laid off half its employees last year as revenue fell 80% during the pandemic before rebounding. An incredible story for Toast. Meanwhile, shares of AKA brands are lower in their first day of trading. They can't even price uh, above the IPO price from last night. This is a fashion company aimed at Gen Z and millennials. It opened at $9.50 after pricing at 11 Even that was the low end of the range. Uh, in fact, shares then are slightly up from where it opened today by about half a buck. And other news, investors are cheering News Corp's billion-dollar buyback plan. It shares on track to snap a three-month losing streak, the longest since March 2020. They're up about 3% right now. And shares of Stitch Fix are also popping after the company reported a surprise fourth-quarter profit. Be sure to catch the CEO on closing bell today at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. President Biden and French President Macron
8: saying that better communication would have avoided problems from the U.S. decision to supply Australia with nuclear-powered submarines. The two presidents announcing that they'll meet in Europe at the end of October and that France's ambassador to the U.S. will return to Washington next week. In California, a judge has ruled that a classmate of college student Kristen Smart must stand trial for her murder. Smart's been missing since 1996, the classmate, Paul Flores, was the last person to see her. The father of Flores will also stand trial for allegedly helping bury her body. And in Spain's Canary Islands, the volcanic eruption that we've been talking about all week has forced evacuations of another thousand people. At least 150 homes have been destroyed, and crews are now trying to redirect the lava flows to try to reduce further damage. And on the news, experts say that the eruption could last for weeks. Our residents are dealing with this latest natural disaster, tonight at 7
1: Eastern. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Now, the taper timeline, what bond yields are telling us about the state of inflation, mapping the dot plot and what it all means for markets with about half an hour until the Fed's rate decision. We have all of that and more coming up in our special Fed edition of Rapid Fire right after this. Welcome back to the exchange, everybody. We're just minutes away from the latest Fed decision, and there's plenty at stake. It's time for a special Fed edition of Rapid Fire. Here to break down some of the biggest headlines and themes to watch, Subajra Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy at Societe Generale. Stephen Rusciuto is chief U.S. economist at Mizuho Securities. And Brian Reynolds is chief market strategist at Reynolds Strategy. It's wonderful to have you guys all on board. Our first topic, is this the taper or just the tease for it? Fed Chair Jerome Powell signaled potential for tapering asset purchases at Jackson Hole last month, but he noted the need for improvement in many areas of the recovery, particularly the labor market. Now, you'll recall, while the unemployment rate dropped to 5.2% last month, we only added 235,000 jobs. It was nearly half a million below estimates. So does this meet the Fed's threshold for substantial improvement, Brian?
4: I don't think so. We're close on unemployment to where they were when they started raising rates in 2015, 5.2 now, 5.1 then. But we know they did too much too soon back then. So I think they'll want to see it go lower before they start raising rates. So I think we're away, way away, away from, a, from a rate hike.
1: A ways away still. Steve, you agree?
7: Well, I think we're a ways away from a rate hike. Are we a ways away from taper? Uh, That's a different story. I don't expect one to be announced in September, but I do think you'll get tapering announced in November and executed in January.
1: What, Steve, does that mean for the language that we should expect today, both in the statement and in the press conference? So then, I think everybody here is on board with the idea that we don't get the taper announcement today. We get, as we would call it in TV, the tease for it.
7: Yeah. In terms of the the post-meeting policy statement, I don't think you're going to see much significant change uh, in that policy statement. Because as Brian mentioned, we still have some room to go in here. Even if you think of the Fed's own long-term target for joblessness, it's 4%. They're well above that particular level at this point in time. So the Fed's not going to do anything to signal any way, shape, or form that there's a near-term adjustment uh, in terms of uh, interest rates coming. The concern will be whether or not the dots show that more and more members of the committee are believing that they'll be in a position for liftoff in 2023, or if not potentially as early as late 2022. Right. And
1: we will focus on the dots in just a moment. But Subhadra, first, how do they prepare markets for this to be possibly announced in six weeks more time? Or are markets already fully pricing in this outcome? Well, is there any chance of a surprise today, you think? Uh, The only way they could surprise, I would think, is if they were hawkish.
9: Yeah, definitely. I think there's a potential that they sound uh, somewhat hawkish. I think the hawkishness is going to come mostly in the summary of economic projections. Uh, they could change the dots. Like Steve mentioned, they could have a dot for next year. Um, so the hawkishness is really going to be in sort of the details, not anything in the in the language. But I think the market's very much prepared for a November announcement for taper. So we're very, very much on track for that. And that's exactly what you're going to see is you're not going to see some substantial further progress, but they're probably going to keep that progress language in the statement to sign to, to sort of show that they're ready to act soon.
1: Okay, we're always watching for the adjectives that come out and then go in, and you know what that means for the timeline. Uh, so these will be especially important today. The next topic related uh, one, as well as kind of looking for the message from bond yields, you know, this uh, we've got an obsession on this show with how low they are. Will they ever go up again? The 10-year is hovering around 1.3 percent. And according to our latest CNBC Fed survey, they won't get higher anytime soon. Respondents said they expect the yield to be about 1.5 percent the end of this year and not above 2 percent until the end of 2022. So, Steve, will the taper unleash a more normal trading environment to, for treasuries or not?
7: No, it won't. I mean, there's, there's two factors at work. One, the taper will allow more supply to remain in the system. But by the same token, the Treasury's borrowing numbers, even with the Biden uh, Build Back Better program being passed, the coupon issues that are already outstanding uh, in terms of the size the Treasury already has, already borrows more money than the, trade will, tr- the Treasury will need in 2022. And the net result is, as we see tapering going on, we'll also be reducing issuance of coupons. And the net result is it's going to keep the curve on the flatter side.
1: Do you agree with that, Subhaja? We've noted the curve's been flattening lately, uh, yesterday in particular. I think it was the flattest since early last year. That's not great for financials, although they don't seem to be minding too much today.
9: Should we expect more flattening? More flattening? Perhaps not. I feel like the curve's already quite flat, especially if you look at the 10s, 30s or the 20s, 30s part of the curve, the curve's extraordinarily flat so you know more flattening perhaps not but you know the other sort of point that i would make towards steve had mentioned is that the demand dynamic has been very very strong so anytime we do see a sell-off based on strong fundamentals higher inflation a taper announcement or anything like that i think you're going to see investors coming in and buying as as bonds uh you know sell off you're seeing very very strong demand from from foreign investors you're seeing demand from domestic investors like pensions and insurance companies so That's going to cap the rise in yields, if you will.
1: And Brian, how much of this is because there's so much liquidity in the system, so to speak? You know, do you think there's economic information from a 1.3 percent 10-year, or does it actually reflect the need for the Fed to start uh, taking some liquidity away?
4: I think it reflects, reflects the need to take some liquidity away, because we just talked about the supply of treasuries and the demand for them. And the demand is only going to increase, because I've detailed a number of states that are taking in a lot more money from personal taxes, especially capital gains taxes, that money goes into their pensions and that goes into the credit market. So you've got the potential for a lack of supply and an increase in demand. There's not enough bonds to go around.
1: Is that a distortion, Brian? Is there just a mismatch between the kinds of investment products that people need and what's out there?
4: Oh, sure. The, this whole financial system is completely distorted. Our, the biggest global investor, a nation's public pensions, they need to make 7 to 7.5%. That's where the big distortion comes in. Not that the fact that yields are low, the fact that pension needs are so high.
1: But that means, Brian, that you could be bullish on the stock market even while acknowledging the system's distorted. And then does this kind of crazy daisy chain just keep going on and on and on?
4: Sure, because all that money feeds into corporate stock buybacks, and that will, that pushes stocks higher. So we're at the beginning of a great bull market based on this credit cycle.
1: But one that perhaps leaves people feeling uncomfortable deep down for reasons that you've just articulated. As it has
4: been the case for 30 years.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. All right. Let's talk about the dots. Plenty of people are more focused on this chart of each individual Fed member's interest rate projections this afternoon, saying that's what will really drive rates, including those interest rates we were just discussing. Back in June, seven out of 18 Fed officials penciled in hikes beginning next year in 2022. The median showed rates holding until 2023, Stephen. So what is the significance if that median first hike moves into 2022 today?
7: This is where the yield curve dynamic becomes important because if you remember, you know, going into the June FOMC meeting, when the last time we had the SCP and the DOTS released, the two-year note was hovering at around 10 basis points. Immediately after the DOTS and the SCP were released in June, that two-year note jumped up to 25 basis points, and we've been hovering around 20 basis points since then. And I think with regard to the two-10-year spread, the big next move is going to be in that two-year note moving back up to higher levels and flattening the curve from the front end, as well as the currency being so strong on that, helping to flatten the curve at the long end.
1: But Steve, isn't a flatter curve, and I know you and Sabadra differ a little bit on this, but if you do think it's going to keep flattening because the two-year moves up on these rate hike projections, that's usually a bearish sign for stocks and growth in the long run. You know That could take several years to play out, but it's still not a welcome development.
7: Well, you're 100% correct, and this is one of the reasons why I myself have been looking for a correction for some time and still think a correction will happen. I believe it's a healthy correction because it shakes out the loose holders, the weak holders in the marketplace gets that all cleaned out of the system and allows us to start going forward into what we think will happen in 2022, which we think will be another very, very strong year of about 10% return in the equity market um, for next year. So, I mean, having a correction right now is a healthy thing. And we think what's going to happen in the currency, in the uh, curve and in the currency market are going to help trigger or sustain what's happening already in the last couple of weeks into that equity market to a full correction phase.
1: Interesting. Subhaja, do you think the uh, tapering itself or the interest rate projections, the dots are more important to the markets?
9: Definitely the interest rate projections and the dots because the market is now pricing in, the market pricing of hikes, there's only about maybe three to four hikes priced in by the end of 2024. And it's possible that when the dots come out in the next few minutes, we could see a hike for 2022, perhaps three hikes for 2023 another three hikes for 2024. So the market's going to have to do a lot of catching up. And that's when I think you see a sell-off led by the front end and the belly uh, as the market starts to quickly price and perhaps the potential for for more hikes down the pike. And the big difference this time, as opposed to in 2013, when, again, the Fed was quite aggressive with its dots, is the fact that inflation is actually quite high. And the persistence of inflation means that the market's underpricing uh, the, the risk of hikes over the coming years.
1: All right. All right. Let's move on finally then and talk more broadly about the recovery and where we are at this juncture. The Dow and the S&P are having their best day in two months ahead of this meeting, but the averages are still on pace for their worst month since last October. So where exactly are we in the economic expansion and where do equities go from here? Brian, I think we got your obvious uh, take on equities and what might be driving that, especially emanating from the credit markets. But what do you think that tells us about the fundamental health of the economy? And are you looking for any other contributions on the fiscal side?
4: Well, coming out of a pandemic, usually the economy picks up and that goes back 700 years. So I'm looking for above average growth compared to the last 11 years. But if you look at the valuation of stocks versus credit, it's at historic levels. The earnings yield on stocks is so cheap compared to the Yield on junk bonds, and I know some people will say, well, that's comparing an expensive asset to another expensive asset. But junk is the currency that we convert stocks into LBOs. We had the same setup in 2014, and people were saying the same things, oh, junk bond yield are too low. They rose seven. Uh, they rose 200 basis points in the next nine months. We could see that very easily and still have a terrific bull market. If we just repeat what happened after we got to this valuation level, stocks would be above 9,000 by 2029. 20, I know that's a big move, but that's what we just did the last seven years. And even if we only do half of that to 7,000, that's still a move that most institutional investors are not prepared for.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Stephen, what would you say to that?
7: Well, I mean, let let me go back a little bit here. I mean, where are we in the cycle? We're in the early stages of an expansion. What happens in the early stages of an expansion? Basically, cash flows become much more sustainable uh, and stable and predictable, which is good for credit. It's number one. Number two, we also see delinquency late rates decline, which is good for credit. So it continues to argue that the grab free yield will go on. And because the grab free yield continues to go on, that's then going to help lead to a good equity market going forward. The question is, how strong will that equity market be? And the answer is, it's kind of hard to tell what's going to happen on a three to four year basis. But we know 2021 is going to be a very, very good year. And we know 2022 is going to be an excellent year as well. You know, the percentages of 10% plus type growth in 2022 is still a very, very excellent performance for equities going forward against what you're getting in bond yields.
1: All right. So, Subajra, I'll give you the final word. And you're on the spoilsport side because you have to look at these bond yields and figure out, OK, if everyone's talking about high stock valuations and economic growth, well, surely the 10-year should be above 2 percent, except that it just refuses.
9: Absolutely. I mean, we actually lowered our forecast. We think the 10-year yields get to around 170 by the end of the year. And that's because of all of the dynamics on the demand side of the equation. And and as far as bonds are concerned, it's not just a U.S. story. It's a global bond story. And as long as, you know, bond yields as well as uh, JGB yields remain low, you're going to see this constant foreign demand because on a currency adjusted basis, Treasuries continue to look attractive for foreign investors. All right. So we'll get
1: the T's for the taper. Uh, Maybe the dots coming forward, flattening the yield curve a little bit, but still a good setup in the long run. I, I hope that's an accurate synopsis of what we've just heard here today. Thank you all for your time, it's great to have you. Subaja Rajapa, Steven Ricciuto, and Brian Reynolds for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, Volkswagen's truck unit is the latest automaker to warn about tight supply thanks to the ongoing chip shortage. We'll speak with the former president of Intel, Renee James, about how to solve it next. And before we head to break, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. All month long, we're spotlighting CNBC contributors, business leaders, and our own employees. Here is former United Airlines CEO, Oscar Munoz.
0: The way to build the next generation of Latino leaders is frankly to groom them through a pipeline. You have to specifically focus on the recruitment of the talent and then the professional development, and then while inside the company, making them feel like they have value and they have equal access to the top. And that just takes a lot of effort and work and focus from the senior most leaders in the corporation to make sure they give people in the underrepresented minority community a chance.
1: Welcome back to the exchange. A broad rally in the semi space today with all 25 components of the SMH ETF positive, led by Micron, Nvidia, and NXP, all up about 2.5%. Now, this comes as the White House plans for a meeting tomorrow with industry leaders in an attempt to address the chip shortages that have hampered other industries. But what do these companies actually need to get these all-important chips out the door? Let's ask an industry leader. Joining me now is Renee James, founder and CEO of the chip manufacturer Ampere Computing. Renee, it's great to have you. I know you're really focused on solving this issue. Um, what Thank do you too. think the Thank focus for- will be at this confab tomorrow? Um, and, and how, I mean, we've been talking about this issue for a year now, and we have, you know, some people who come on and say, you know, they point the finger at companies saying they should have had this figured out by now, and everyone's blaming each other and pointing the finger, and now the U.S. government wants to spend a bunch of money to try and solve it. But what do you think really needs to be done?
10: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, Kelly. Um You know, I think we had a perfect storm in semiconductors. And all morning, we've been talking about shortages from labor and shipping issues. It's hitting every industry. So it's not unique to semis. What is unique to semiconductors is unprecedented demand. And, you know, as many of your guests, as you pointed out, I went back and and watched every segment on this topic that's been on CNBC for a long time. And we had an unprecedented demand. um, And through the pandemic, I think we... Uh, The industry as a whole thought that perhaps demand would taper. It didn't taper. It, in fact, grew. It's not cyclical. It's sustained demand. That's great news for semis. Unfortunately, to lay in more capacity takes, you know, 18 to 24 months. So we're into it in some sectors, depending on the kind of semiconductor we're talking about, things are beginning to ease towards the end of the year. In high performance, like what we build at Ampere, these, you know, large high-performance chips... Um, it's going to be another 18 months probably of tight tightening. And it's up and down the supply chain. It's not one piece. So what you you asked a great question. What are we going to do tomorrow? We're going to talk about what we're going to do for the long-term health of U.S. semiconductors, which is very important. I'm really um, pleased that this administration has been able to pass in the Senate a bipartisan approach with the CHIPS Act. I'm looking forward to that appropriation. Tomorrow, what we're going to talk about is the improved um, data collection and transparency required to understand what the real root cause uh, issues are and what we need to sure. put in place. Let me so ask that, this, that, so Let it. me... It.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wonder, Renee, are we making too much of a pandemic, right? Do we need to have a complete, is the, is the answer to what happened, that we had a global pandemic, an unprecedented situation to deal with and everyone's scrambling to catch up? I mean, is it that simple or did this somehow reveal other flaws that we have an opportunity now to fix?
10: I think both. I think what we thought was that we, I, I think this demand signal might have been read incorrectly in 2019 and 20. And in addition to that, it uncovered Um, the fragility of the supply chain for semiconductors worldwide and the decline in U.S. manufactured semis, which, as you know, is not just a supply chain issue. It's also a national security issue for us. So, um, you know, one of the things that companies like mine, a small company, a startup only four years old, however, I've been in this business for over 30 years, we know that there's some systemic long-term things that we need to go after to build the health of U.S. semiconductors. And that is what the Commerce Department is focused on talking with all of us about tomorrow and working on over the next five years. I mean, this is not a short-term thing. It's something we need to get after as a national agenda.
1: Yeah. Final question then. What does financial support, which I presume this is from the U.S. government, do to change what would otherwise be the private sector scrambling to do
10: this on its own? Yeah, I think that in order to do this properly, it's going to take a lot of private sector work, more so than any government assistance. What I think government assistance does is makes it a national priority, helps to shape the agenda of where we put monies, and in in key places for R&D and smaller companies, and even for some of the um, specialized areas of manufacturing, can really assist in getting money moving in the right direction. So I think the agenda of how this money gets spent is quite important. I think that it's going to end up being a public-private partnership to get the magnitude of spending that need be done, but it's important. It's important because now we're having the right conversation, and it's cross-industry conversation. It's not just any one company.
1: Well, we appreciate you giving us a preview of it and the stakes as well. Renee, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Renee James with Ampere. Up next, watch out Coinbase. Robinhood's latest product could mean tough competition for crypto exchanges. We'll tell you more about it right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Robinhood are up about 5 or 6% today after launching crypto wallets, after users demanded ownership of their digital assets. Kate Rooney is here with the details today. Kate? Hey, Kelly, Robinhood will start letting users hold their
8: own Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in what's known as a wallet. And Kelly, this has been a point of contention on social media. Robinhood users have complained that, yes, they had exposure to crypto prices, but not ownership of the assets themselves. I sat down with Robinhood's chief product officer on TechChuck earlier. She says the slow rollout was intentional.
1: One is making sure that we do this with enough safety and safeguards in this. Wallets are, in mean, crypto is an emerging ecosystem. It's an emerging market. We want to make sure that it can we can expand the access to the market, but do it safely. So that's one reason. And the second is we're trying to take a different tack here by building it in
8: public. To start, Robinhood is launching this for a select group of users and then soliciting feedback along the way. And crypto has become an increasingly important Uh, line item for Robinhood and earnings. Back in Q2, Robinhood saw about half of transaction-based revenue coming from crypto alone. That was up from about 17% in the first quarter. Today's announcement, though, sets up a lot more competition in the space. Crypto wallets had been a pretty big differentiator for some of the earlier movers like
1: Coinbase and Gemini. Kelly? It is definitely shaking things up. Kate, thank you very much. Kate Rooney. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.